Hey y'all, this is BA in Science. I'm Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we're so glad you're here to listen to us tell you all about some badass humans who also happen to be scientists. Kind of, because it's Brawl Day. It's my favorite day and my favorite topic, which is petty drama queens. These petty drama queens also happen to be scientists. Well, one of them was this, uh, like a really good scientist. The other one was a doctor and a politician, kind of. But we'll also, get into that's that. That's debatable. I know. The whole- doctor, doctor in air quotes. You know how I say I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. I yeah. mean, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it because I would agree with that. No matter what you call these dudes, though, super dramatic big time drama queens, very petty with horrible consequences for all. So it's going to be great. Very different from our last brawl, but still totally awesome. So did anybody guess our BAs or what our brawl was about this week? Yes, I guess in a roundabout way. The names weren't actually given, but we're going to be talking about something called phlogiston. Mm-hmm. And dad, of course, dad, of course, asked if our brawl this week had anything to do with phlogiston, and we'll talk about it. So yes, it did. But you feel like the fact that he knew that word, he knows that he knew he knew what was going on. He knows the episode today. I agree. He knows yeah. that's that's yeah. definitely a that's a positive identification there. So yeah, fair enough. So let's do weekly business. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at BA and Science. That's where we post pics and source info for this episode as usual. You can also email us at BA and Science at gmail.com if you've got suggestions or addendums or, you know, you just want to say hi or accolades, praise, you know, whatever that kind of stuff. Also, wherever you listen, remember to rate and review or favorite us or whatever so the internet knows that you want to hear more. Because if like Facebook and Instagram ever go down again, which quite frankly seems likely, you know, we'll still need the podcasts. You know, you can find us there even if you can't find us on Facebook. So do we have any addendums this week? I have one addendum. We talked about the death of Hypatia in our last episode and how maybe it was roofing tiles, but also maybe oysters. I remember. And we, we leaned heavily toward roofing tile because oysters. <laughs> but I did go back and check where I had read about it translating to oyster shells. And it wasn't like they pelted her with those. It would have been like they flayed her with jagged oyster shells. Okay. That which okay. would be a really horrible, horrible way to die just as much as getting beaten to death with roofing tiles. But that's how... If it was oyster shells, that's, I guess, kind of the interpretation was that she was flayed by them, not, you know, just chucked. They didn't just like chuck them at her. Okay. Cause I was going to ask, I actually was going to ask that question and I didn't because it seemed to me that it would hurt more. Like it it could slice you because oyster shells are very sharp. sharp. So it was like, is it that? But like, if they were talking about pelting, like it would have to be that they chucked them at her. No. Okay. So good addendum either way I don't want a way to die yes we can agree on that because I don't want to do it I don't want either one but it makes the oyster shells sound less ridiculous Mm because I still think it sounds a little ridiculous Mm -hmm. but it would have been horrible so not a good not a happy addendum but an addendum nonetheless all right well that is all I have so are you ready to do the brawl let's do it all right let's take a break and get into it 
So Brenna, you have the backstory for us today. And as I mentioned before, these guys had a lot going on, very petty, very much dramatic types. So what kind of quote do you have for us today? And then tell us who our players in the brawl are. Okay. So I actually have two quotes, Mm -hmm. one for each of our brawlers. Awesome. So in one corner, we have a man of whom it was written, it took them only an instant to cut off that head and a hundred years may not produce another like it. Oh, yes. And in the other corner, we have a man who was a tiger that would have drunk the blood of his mother from the skull of his father, but also was the friend of the people. That is the most ridiculous, but also accurate description of this guy you could have picked. It's perfect. Yeah. So those are our contenders. And our contenders are Antoine Lavoisier, who I'm just going to call Tony from here on out, because I feel like I said that really well that Mm -hmm. one time, and I'm going to just stick with that. Mm -hmm. If you're French, let me know how badly I butchered it. (laughs) And Jean-Paul Marat, who I'm just going to call JP mm-hmm. for the same reason. Yes. Uh, so the first quote about it only took them an instant cut off the head was Tony. And the tiger who would have drunk the blood of his mother is JP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would have. I mean, I don't, I don't know. These two. I mean, I'll just say I, because I didn't get involved in the brawl itself, Tony doesn't seem petty to me. Like the things that I have researched about Tony, I'm like, he wasn't really that petty. This is fine. So I'm excited to hear about the pettiness because I kind of feel like he's just on the up and up doing his science thing. But Mm, yes, he, and that's the legacy that his wife wanted us to have of him. I'll talk about her. Mm -hmm. So our story today takes place during the time leading up to and getting into the French Revolution. And that's going to play a role in some of the crazy stuff that goes down. I'm actually, normally I do cover the context of historically where we are, but I know that Maggie is actually going to cover that a lot because Mm -hmm. it is very important in the Mm -hmm. brawl itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give you kind of the backstory, the life story of JP and the life story of Tony and kind of bring you up to speed and leave them living their lives at the time of the French Revolution. Perfect. Okay. So JP was born on May 24th, 1743 in Baudry, which is in modern day Switzerland. He was the first of five children born to Jean Mera, who was a Sardinian designer and language teacher, and Luis, who was from Geneva. And I, so I have to say a couple of the sources that I used for JP had a little bit of different information as far as some of his family background. So either his mom's side had French, uh, what we would call Huguenots, French Mm -hmm. Huguenot ties, or then one place I read is that his dad was actually a French Huguenot, but that doesn't make, I don't know. He was from Sardinia, which is that little, one of those little islands off Italy. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, he does have a connection to France through his parentage. Okay. Okay. His father was a designer and language teacher, as I mentioned, but that's not really stable. That's not a stable job. Mm -hmm. So they weren't really a wealthy family. They were kind of just a middle-class family. He's not 
from the aristocracy or anything like that. I did read that he learned five European languages, hmm. um, which makes sense because his dad was a language teacher. They don't say which, but if I had to guess, I'd go French, German, English, Italian? Probably. Spanish? I don't know. Yeah, that, that's what I would lean toward because they wouldn't have they wouldn't Maybe. have learned Russian. He wouldn't have learned Russian or any of the so. or or any of like from Persia or any, they wouldn't have done that. Right. I don't. Yeah. So anyway, five languages. So JP didn't have a lot of formal training um, because he, again, wasn't in the aristocracy. So he wasn't getting the same kind of education that you could pay for as a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't read a lot about his early education other than he had some kind of education in like where he grew up and he had an interest in science. Okay. So when he was 16 or 17, he was a tutor in Bordeaux for a few years to, uh, the children of a a wealthy aristocrat. Mm -hmm. And he was also studying kind of under their patronage, that family's patronage as well. Okay. So I think he possibly studied in Bordeaux and Toulouse and Paris, but only, or one source only mentioned studying in Bordeaux. Anyway, he does this thing, but by 1765, he's off to London. If you're about to ask me, Maggie, why did he go to London? Let me go ahead and answer that. We don't know. Okay. We don't really have an explanation. So this is where we get into his, and I'm using the term loosely medical training he's watching me do air quotes i am and there's theories he possibly started his medical training in france and then he went to london to continue that training i feel like joey from friends like yeah i'm sorry (laughs) possibly he saw england as being a place of greater freedom that than france Mm. so we'll get a little bit I know both of us probably I won't do it as much but I know you'll definitely talk on kind of his role in the revolution Mm -hmm. so maybe he just felt like that was the least oppressive place to be at that point anyway so let's talk about his very not illustrious in my opinion medical career Mm -hmm. he probably attended private courses in some capacity if he wasn't interested in medicine so maybe that's what they're considering his training but there's no record of him enrolling in an institution to take courses or anything like that just he gets to london and at some point he sets up a dispensary on church street in soho which was the french quarter of london at the time which Mm -hmm. i did not know about no yeah at least that's what the the one of the sources that i was reading said and I guess he's just, they're doing medicine. Dispensing so it, things. I don't know. Dispensing things. At some point in 1774. So kind of towards the end, he's there, he's in London for a little around 10 years, but at some point in 1774, he goes to Scotland and we know that he worked with an oculist, which I read as a cultist when I first read it and that would have been a much more interesting story let me tell you yes but quite frankly those two are not the same and I wish it was an occultist because but but it was an oculist because then they started talking about eyes and I said oh I wrote that incorrectly so but that's all we know like he went and did some work with the eye dude okay so somehow by the following year Two well-known doctors out of Edinburgh recommended him for an MD from the University of St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. Basically, JP pays a graduation fee. And on June 30th, 1775, he receives his doctorate in medicine. Come on. So let me just point out that at this time, 
St. Andrews, I don't know if they do now, but St. Andrews did not have a med school. JP took no classes or no exams there. We don't even have a record of him ever being at the university at all, even to visit. So he was accused of buying his degree, which quite frankly seems like a pretty accurate I don't, description of what happened. I don't think that's an accusation. I think that's facts. Like, yeah. bro, you totally didn't go to med school. So St. Andrews may or may not have kind of been involved in this kind of thing to get more money. Basically, here, give us money and we'll give you a degree. I'm, I don't think that they are the only ones. I guarantee you they're not the only university. Like, I'm just... I'm out there for anybody who loves the University of St. Andrews. I'm not saying that they're up to shady business by themselves. I have a feeling that this was more common than we realize Mm -hmm. or think about in terms of you just get people, you get wealthy aristocrats who are like, here, give my son this degree, have some money for your law school or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think they're the only university doing this kind of shady stuff, but you know, JP kind of gets all chippy about it I think because I don't know so during his time in London he did kind of run in crowds that had important people of the time and here's my favorite person that I read about that he's connected to a little T he reportedly had an affair with the artist Angelica Kaufman who is a big name in the neoclassicism movement in the art world yeah supposedly had an an affair with her I have literally no other details other than I read it one place in one source that mentioned it. But I mean, but what do we do on this podcast? Find the most ridiculous fun facts we can and tell them to you. Because remember, he's a badass and it's pretty BA to have an affair with like a huge name in the art world, a big deal artist, babe, while you're, you know, out and about in the world. And her artwork's kind of cool. So Mm -hmm. Google her. So he does start writing stuff of a more political nature while he's in London as well, which I won't get into, but he also does some writing of a medical nature, I suppose. So his writings weren't really recognized at the time, but they were discovered later and published like they were republished and I won't go too much into them, (laughs) but you're laughing because you know what it's about, don't you? Yeah, I do. One was about gleeks which is another name for gonorrhea. And I Mm -hmm. giggle a little bit every time I read that word. And I know that that's ridiculous, but I think it's a silly word. It is a silly word. um, And it's better than than gonorrhea, only marginally. It's more, let me say it this way. It's more entertaining than the word gonorrhea because there's nothing funny about that. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much not. No. Um, And I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to talk more about Tony's science, but JP had some ideas about how to refine treatment for gleets. And because treatment for gonorrhea was (laughs) horrible. Oh, the things they like, again, see TPWKY, this podcast will tell you. I definitely listened to that one and it Uh was, it was painful to listen to. It was, it was horrifying and I'm not even a dude. Yeah. It was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you think the catheter talk is bad. It only gets worse with gonorrhea. So his other paper had to do with eye disease. Bottom line, it didn't really have a lot of medical merit, uh, which is probably why we didn't know about it until later, but they Mm -hmm. did find it. So he he tried to write a few things, but eh. again, I'm not overly impressed by this medical career that he has. But 
he gets back to Paris and by 1777, he kind of has this nickname of doctor to the incurables. So apparently he treated people with consumption, which is Mm -hmm. what we would call TB Mm -hmm. and other venereal diseases. He actually said, there is no gleat incurable. I disagree. I think that I think that this is clearly a sign that he did not go to medical school. That would be like me saying things about chemists. Like if I started to talk about organic chemistry and everyone was like, excuse me, no. I feel like we need dad on here to go. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dr. Nick. Yeah, he sounds like like the level for JP. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Also, you guys, you can't cure TB really like or I mean, well, today you can. But I mean, there's a lot of um, antibiotic resistant TB. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is a there's a lot of problems with TB. And again, this podcast will kill you does a really good job with TB. But you back then they weren't curing people with consumption. No, like they weren't period. No. Yeah. Well, so, so I guess he, he treated a Marques mm-hmm. for TB and, you know, he cures her whatever, but I, I did read like, you can, I mean, again, like you said, you can ease your TB symptoms and you can, it can kind of like kind of go into remission or whatever. And it wouldn't have honestly probably been from anything he did other than maybe just like, Hey, get some fresh air or, you know, whatever. But anyway, other people do kind of think he's a charlatan. I feel like it was, he's either this really great doctor and he's doing this great stuff for these incurables, or he's a total clown with a clown degree. So he does get some recognition. He becomes the doctor to the bodyguard of the future Charles the 10th of France mm-hmm. is Louis 16th younger brother. Yes. So he does have influential connections and stuff within court, within the aristocracy and so forth. In 1792, he marries Simone Evrard. She's 26. He's 49. So gross. You know. Typical, but gross. Gross. And yeah, basically that's all you need to know about him, except for just this little teeny bit of science stuff. Uh, that I'll talk about very, again, very briefly, because I'm sure you're going to talk more about it. But JP sets up a lab from the money he earned being a doctor to mm-hmm. a lot of wealthy aristocrats. So his main topics of interest were fire, electricity, and light. Mm-hmm. So 1780, he published research into the physics of fire, which included 166 experiments conducted to show that fire is not a material element, but an igneous fluid. I don't know why you needed 166 experiments to prove nothing, but okay. Mm -hmm. Then he had discoveries on light, which challenged a lot of long-held Newtonian theories about refraction, diffraction, how many primary colors there are and so forth. Yeah, he Um, was wrong about all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you have to imagine, you know, going against, we'll talk about this with Tony too, going against these really long-held Newtonian theories is not popular, yeah, so I don't want to get to again, I don't want to spoil too much, but that's kind of what he's doing in terms of, I think, when he try when he's trying to get into the Academy of Science and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, he does some research on the physics of electricity, too, and he outlines like 214 experiments on that. So, all right. One other thing I want to mention now, but I'll actually discuss this later because I want to get to it. You, we have to get through his whole life before I can really talk about this, but just one account that I saw uh, wrote that he was short in stature, deformed in person, and hideous in face. Okay. 
he had a really, he had, at some point he gets a really bad skin disease. Mm-hmm. I know you'll talk about a little bit. And again, I want to talk, I want to talk some science about that later, but uh, you can talk about it as much as you want, because I'm only going to cover the reality of the outcome. If he wouldn't yeah. have had this disease, his life, he might've yeah. still had a life. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just, I'll just mention that because of his skin disease, he might've spent a lot of time in a bathtub trying to ease his symptoms. Yes. He so, definitely did. And he would receive his friends and guests there yeah. and do work and stuff. So I'm going to leave JP there hanging out in his bathtub. Perfect. And really super involved in the French Revolution. Yes. In fact, a critical player in the French Revolution yeah. at that point. Yeah. Okay. So we're good on JP. Sounds great. Okay. Now for our other BA, I feel like Tony probably should have had his own episode because he's a chemist and I'm a chemist and he feels like he's just so very important and he gets mentioned in all the textbooks, right? I mean, yes. this is a name that if you have taken a science class with a science book or chemistry book, you have heard his name before Yes, because he's important. He's so, considered to be the father of modern chemistry. Modern chemistry, yes. Yes. So I would love to spend a really long time on things related to him. I'm going to try to condense it all down really, really short so the editor doesn't get mad at me. You're okay on time so far. So, awesome. you know. So we'll get into his life. Um, again, I'll kind of get you up to his revolution, the, the period of the French Revolution and skip over a lot of his mm-hmm. uh, stuff that has to do with the academy. Mm-hmm. And then we'll leave him there for Maggie to take on too. Yeah. So Tony was born August 26th, 1743 to Jean-Antoine and Emily Lavoisier. So Tony is her first child and two years later, his sister Marie Marguerite Emily is born. Daddy's a lawyer um, and the family is bougie AF. So bougie, like, like bad and bougie. bougie. Thank you. Queens podcast. Like, oh my gosh. Bougie. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's important. We'll talk about how bougie because yeah. Yeah. If they had Um, been less bougie, everything might've turned out very different. I don't know. So Unfortunately, sadly, just a year after his sister was born, his mother dies. 1740, March 24, 1746, his mother dies. And for two years, the, the three remaining Lavoisiers were on their own. But then in 1748, they moved in with their grandmother okay. and Auntie Constance, her sister. Hmm. And Aunt Connie kind of fills it, the, mater- the maternal role as best she can. And she took it very seriously to see about their education and all that. And I read even later on, like she was making sure like, no, you need new clothes. Here's some money, go get your new suit kind of thing. Like she definitely kind of stepped in um, as a mother figure, not as a wife or like there was nothing between her and their father, but just mm-hmm. as the mother role, she really kind of took over okay. as best she could. Um, but, you know, they were two years on their own and Tony was very young and so it did kind of make him kind of quiet, serious, um, not overly social kind of child. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to zip forward to 1754 and two big things happened in Tony's life. First, his great grandpa died and Tony inherited his fortune, mm-hmm. the fortune that his great grandpa made from being a meat merchant. Mm-hmm. And the inheritance was roughly by today's conversions and so forth. Two million dollars. 
Oh man. I would please like to inherit $2 million from my great grandpa. That's not happening. It's not going to happen. Like we don't have any great grandpas left. Yeah. So that's not happening, but yeah. Um, so already his family is very like well off and Mm -hmm. his dad's a lawyer. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, again, bougie, but now Tony's got his own $2 million inheritance. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that he starts attending the college Mazarin, um, which is just uh, a hoity-toity secondary school. Mm, Okay. In 1760, his sister dies, uh, which I I think must have impacted him because now he's down to just his dad and Aunt Connie, essentially. So in 1761, the following year, he leaves school, which he's two years short of having the baccalaureate degree. I didn't write it down, but I think it's like he needed like, to philosophy was it philosophy mm-hmm. i can't yeah. I think it was philosophy right? i think that's okay, right yeah. he cut out of his philosophy stuff so he didn't get his baccalaureate but because his dad was a lawyer and i think he didn't really know exactly what to do he goes to law school for two years and then he gets into the order of barristers in 1763 mm-hmm. which this meant he's allowed to plead cases in front of you know the highest courts in france he doesn't actually ever practice law right, right. so um he's he he can Mm-hmm. But he doesn't actually ever utilize that time of his life that he spent doing law school. So Tony also started studying other subjects like meteorology, mm-hmm. botany, basic anatomy, and so forth. Like he just starts learning other things while he's in law school. And so he's got this strong interest in science, which I read even from an earlier age when he was in school, he just always kind of had that interest in science. And he seems much happier to study. He avoids going out, uh, has the reputation for being a bit of a recluse. Mm-hmm. I read that he would fake being sick to not have to like go out. Like, oh, I can't, <laughs> I'm sick, wow. you know? All right, so in 1768, um, Tony's grandma dies and she also leaves him a lot of money. Perfect. And he wants to invest it. So he gets involved in what's called the general farm, which has nothing to do with farms, actually. So the farm was a privately owned company that indirectly collected taxes for the government. Mm-hmm. Things like taxes like salt, tobacco, alcohol, customs duties, and so forth. Obviously, these guys are not popular in France. Nobody likes tax guys, even though they're private. Like they basically were the ones that went and tried to get them. And then were like they were subcontracted out basically by the government, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So he buys a third of the share of one of the guys who wants to get out. There's like 60 men that make up the farm and he buys like a a third of one of those shares. And so this is a pretty lucrative career. Tony's getting a lot of money. I read in one source, he basically was making several million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Um, He's got loans and and other debts and stuff to deal with. So like he probably net income took in a close to a million a year is what I was reading. So he starts initially as a regional inspector for the Tobacco Commission, and he works under a guy named Jacques Poles. That guy is important because his boss, Jacques, has a daughter named Marie Anne. Hmm. Marie Anne in 1771 is 13 years old, apparently a very pretty girl with blue eyes and brown hair and blah, blah, blah. So I read in one source, we don't really know how Marie Ann and Tony felt about each other, um, if they knew each other before things went a certain direction. But I did read another source where it sounds like Tony may have kind of spent time in her company because he might have spent time with Jacques. And it was more of like 
a familial like oh I'm hanging out with a family because mm-hmm. I read that they would uh he preferred her company because they would just talk science yeah like, and she was totally into it and he didn't want to talk to like the bougie those bougie yeah because they yeah. were all into like dresses and and stuff stuff so not his scene not he's not going to balls he's not going to see all the eligible bachelorettes and so forth um so i don't want to get it's way too complicated um to get into but Marie Ann, as all young women in history typically are is a good pawn for matchmaking make a long story short there's an important uh abbey like a father in a monastery or Mm -hmm. uh not a monastery a church tells Mm -hmm. her dad marry her off to this count who's like he's super strapped for cash and wants to make some money so he wants to marry somebody rich and Jacques apparently is like a light bulb Tony why don't you marry my daughter and Tony's like okay so there was drama with that in terms of how that went down or whatever because politics blah Mm -hmm. whatever they get married on December 4th, 1771. And her dowry is like 80,000 livres, which is close to 4 million, I think. Okay. To be paid over six years. Okay. Plus he has his inheritances and his dad's fortune is 250,000 livres. 80,000 80, is like 4 million. Oh. He has 250. Yeah. Uh, when we say bougie AF, we are not kidding. So bougie. Like- he's he's so bougie he's almost seriously aristocracy right basically yes he's if i feel like he's as close as you can get to it mm-hmm. without being it yeah because it was the aristocracy you couldn't just like you couldn't buy your way in quite you were just which which was one of the reasons the french revolution happened well, there is that yeah oh and aunt connie comes through with like fifty thousand livres for him as well i know I told you, Aunt Connie, like, yeah. she took care of them. So I read that by the time, again, I read that by the time he pays all his loans because he buys a bigger share in the farm at this point because he's got all this money, um, but he's still got to pay off all his debts for like buying the bigger share and stuff. But anyway, these nice young newlyweds making a million dollars a year. Um, so in 1775, Tony gets a government post as a commissioner of the Gunpowder and Saltpeter Administration. Mm-hmm. I will not sing the song from 1776 again even though we we're talking about saltpeter and that's we all i ever think of when i say that word i know me too tony as i'll talk about a little bit later knows a lot about mineralogy and he found sources of it in limestone formations and he improved extraction techniques and bottom line uh determined through experiment how saltpeter which is potassium nitrate uh was formed So France starts having tons of gunpowder because saltpeter is coming from France now and it's better quality. And like, it's like the best you can get in France now, the the gunpowder, right? Quality is so much better, whatever. And then in 1776, 1777, it's going to America. Yeah. Oh, for sure. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about that too. So, well, Tony actually said in 1789 that one can truly say that North America owes its independence to French gunpowder. And I don't, I, I like, I'm going to say that seriously, it's probably 60, 40, 60% being Americans and 40% French gunpowder. I would, yeah, I would almost like a agree with that. exaggeration, but thanks for the gunpowder, France. For real. We also, also you. your Navy. Thanks for that too. 
but yeah. oh yeah that also helped yeah and and all the people and you know Lafayette and whatever but yeah but yeah. thanks for the gunpowder and thanks Tony for getting that gunpowder to you know top quality for sure okay after this Tony actually goes on a big kick about making improvements in agriculture are you going to talk about that no okay so that kept him out in the country Mrs. Tony got tired of going to the country so she stays in Paris and uh has an affair with a family friend of theirs oh no Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours uh he's an economist and I actually he starts to influence Tony's views on a lot of things when it comes to um the economy Mm -hmm. and they apparently were buddies so either he didn't know that it was happening or he knew and didn't I don't know they were French maybe they don't care you know sorry did I just slam all French people I'm sorry I didn't mean that so um yeah so that's a little interesting I guess uh for Mrs. Tony but anyway I'm going to skip ahead to 1785. Tony actually goes to the Committee on Agriculture um, to tell them like, hey, this tax system for agriculture is not good for farmers production so far. He proposed a lot of reforms. I'm sure you'll talk more about this, but he was ignored. Mm -hmm. But I feel like he tried to make reforms. So I don't know Mm -hmm. what we're going to learn about him in your segment. But from what I, the, the little bits that I read outside of kind of just his straight biography and some of his science, I feel like he was like trying to do the right thing. Even as the revolution begins, he continues to hold government positions as the director of saltpeter and gunpowder administration. He was a director of the bank that makes loans to the Royal Treasury and so forth. And then in 1791, he becomes one of the six commissioners in charge of the public treasury. And then he actually asked for no pay on that because he didn't want to keep getting all this pay from government positions and multiple salaries. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm like, oh, yeah, like, look, he's trying to, like, do the right thing. And he already has bazillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need a government stipend again and whatever. Sure. Um, But things just go bad for Tony during the revolution. And I'm just going to leave his life there Mm -hmm. for Maggie to pick up on or to pick up with after I tell you about his science. But we'll just leave him there in heading into the revolution he's not really he's he's not gonna have a good time of things but first yes let's talk a little chemistry yes because as we mentioned he's considered to be the father of modern chemistry Mm -hmm. which is kind of a big deal I think it is and again I don't have as much time to go into detail so if any of my colleagues are listening don't at me about how I didn't talk about all the important stuff Tony did because I'm having to restrict based on not spending 18 hours talking about him okay because you because we could we easily could spend eight I mean he did I had to sift through a lot to get to some of the like no I'm like gonna condense some of this down like really 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 short and it's really cool though so before I get into his science I do want to mention Murray Ann again for a minute Mm -hmm. so they used to discuss science when they talked and she really did dig it so I guess you know talk nerdy to me yeah, he gets her a chemistry tutor and she basically becomes his collaborator, not just his mm-hmm. assistant. Mm-hmm. She took a large role in his research. She mm-hmm. learned English mm-hmm. so that she could translate English chemistry papers for him. Mm-hmm. She studied drawing under a painter mm-hmm. uh, named Jacques Louis David so that she could illustrate experiments and do the drawings and those kinds of things. I'm and posting, she- I'm posting one of her a print from one of her engravings that she yeah. drew for his. Yeah. Yeah. And she most often, from what I read in one source, was the one who wrote up the experiments after they did them. Mm-hmm. So I just want to shout out the adulterous Marie Ann. 
for at least being super supportive of Tony's passion and love of chemistry. Yeah, like she was, despite maybe some of her personal choices, she was, she is actually the reason he gets to be called the father of modern chemistry because she was right. like, excuse me, are you writing this down? The difference between writing it down and or screwing around in science is writing it down. You need to yeah. be writing it down. Otherwise this is going nowhere. And he was like, I don't really want to do that. She's like, yeah. fine, I'll do it. And she did. She well, and I mean, you have to consider he had an actual civil career. Like he had jobs and he had administrative mm -hmm. duties to attend to. So if he was left on his own to have to write everything down, do all the experiments by himself, translate all the other works that he mm. needed as background information, like he just would not have accomplished as much. Nope. I just really don't think he would have in his lifetime, which is truncated truncated a little, little bit um <laughs> he i mean we well you we you heard the quote at the beginning mm -hmm. but he would not have been able to accomplish the same amount of stuff there's just no way you know so i'm not going to go into tony's works and attempts to get into the academy um he just i mean he's going to do some work in geology and specifically gypsum mm -hmm. so when i talked about his background in having you know being able to maybe work in gunpowder and saltpeter he was kind of studying geology and gypsum and that kind of thing. So what I want to talk about is something called phlogiston theory. Okay, so phlogiston, this theory, uh, the phlogiston theory is pretty much held by everyone at this time. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not everybody, everybody. I think the Russians actually were ahead of the West, but you know how the West and Russia didn't really know, like Russia was kind of over there doing things. So they might've been a little bit ahead on this. So I'll give them a little credit, but really like in France, especially where people are doing all this science, this is the theory. Okay. So the theory is that all flammable materials contain phlogiston, which is a colorless, odorless, tasteless, weightless substance that's released when burned. A compound that has been burned, which is what we would call a combustion reaction, mm -hmm is dephlogisticated to its true, in quotes, calx form, like ash or residue. Okay. Okay. So like what we would call like an oxide, like iron oxide. Mm -hmm. Okay. It would be like a calx. So Tony does some experiments, comes to the conclusion that air is made up of multiple things and something in the air is actually responsible for combustion. Mm -hmm. okay? Spoiler alert, it's oxygen. Um, so yes, phlogiston yes. is oxygen, right? Es essentially. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not weightless or whatever, but right. yes. Um, he also proved that this also led to him proving that water was not an element. So remember for a really long time, the elements were earth, fire, air, and water. So for mm -hmm. him to be like, water is, um, not an element. It's a, it's a compound of things. That, uh, that was scientific heresy at the time. I, again, you have to think these people have been working under these assumptions for centuries. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's just challenging a lot of things similar to JP, but he's actually right about things. So, you know, um, but there's a cute two minute YouTube video that I'm going to post to our Facebook page. So check that out. It'll be up later today or you know, later in the day when the episode after the episode drops. 
because it basically details this experiment. It's like a little cartoon and it's cute. And it's easy to understand. And it kind of shows you what he's doing and how mm-hmm. he did it and whatever. But when his memoir reflections on Phlogiston as uh, read to the Academy, I don't think it went over well. Spoiler alert. It didn't. I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Um, so then he goes on to discover, and I have to say he didn't necessarily. Well, okay. So you also have Joseph Priestley around this time who's mm-hmm. also doing science things and he's mm-hmm. credited with discovering oxygen but mm-hmm. i think tony's the one that gives it a name and like discovers what it's doing and actually Priestley stole it from carl Scheel. all right yeah tough because that in your satchel put listeners. that in your satchel because we're gonna want it we're gonna gonna unpack that piece of the satchel in a couple weeks just put that you know. in your satchel mm-hmm. okay so he then goes on to continue to like work on elements and he listed what he thought were elements. It's not like we didn't know that like iron was a thing, right. but he's like, this is, a, this is an element mm-hmm. or mercury is an element, like breaking it down to that fundamental definition of what an element is, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1789, Elements of Chemistry was published, which was basically the first chemistry textbook. Wow. Which is really cool. So cool. Um, which is a lot of times he gets mentioned like the father of modern chemistry and he had the first chemistry textbook or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where he kind of puts forth all these ideas about elements and, and just kind of all this work that he's doing. And this is a really, really, really crappy short definition of all the really cool stuff that's in there. But I just don't have time. It's okay. He also plays a large role in developing a nomenclature system for naming, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. Stuff. So the method of chemical nomenclature, well, I mean, put that into French, but that was published in 1787 and was 300 pages long, which you I know what, my organic chemistry students think they have a bad having to learn naming rules. I'll be like, read this 300 page book and then tell me it's so bad, you know? Um, although I don't actually know because it's an organization called IUPAC and I don't know how long the official, you know, book is or the, the page, you know, the the rules are from IUPAC. I don't know. Maybe it's 300 pages, but anyway, That's a good question. Cause I don't know either. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a good addendum homework time. Someone let us know the official IUPAC nomenclature rules for naming things. How big is that? Someone tell us. Yes. Okay. But can I tell you a few of the names um, mentioned for yeah. some of the chemicals before Tony and his friends start, you know, cleaning things up? Cause yeah. they're kind of fun. Okay. So iron oxide was called astringent Mars saffron. It's not even yellow, is it? No. Okay. I have no idea. No idea. Zero idea why it was called that. Sulfuric acid was called oil of vitriol. I mean, okay. I mean, they did used to take it for scurvy and stuff. That would make you feel pretty vitriolic. Oh dear. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was a treatment. Yeah. Um, and zinc oxide, this is my favorite zinc oxide was called philosophic wool. What? (laughs) I I know I looked this up though. So I read, uh, the alchemists would burn zinc. Uh And when you burn stuff, like when you burn metals, you get the oxide. So zinc oxide. Uh So zinc oxide, was like a fluffy white tuft of stuff and so they called it philosophic wool guys come on i just kind of only ever want to call zinc oxide philosophic wool for the rest of my life though ridiculous i just love it so i read those in one of the sources i was reading and i was like these names are fantastic 
they are kind of sad that we had to get all accurate and stuff i know you know you always accuse us chemists and scientists of having boring titles for papers and stuff zinc oxide again it's not compared to philosophic wool as as with marah it's not really an accusation as much as stating a fact okay and also super important was like really super important was the law of conservation of matter yes super important which makes sense to most of us from a conceptual point matter isn't created or destroyed it's just transformed Mm -hmm. so if you start with hydrogen and oxygen you make water okay but water is h2o so you didn't destroy the hydrogen you didn't destroy the oxygen if you have two moles of hydrogen and you have one mole of oxygen on the left side of your equation you have to have two moles of hydrogen and one mole of oxygen on the right side because you didn't it didn't disappear you can't just neither did it spontaneously come into being right correct right or you know yeah so that's really important because if you've taken any chemistry class you've had to balance equations which I think is fun, but I do too. It's like one of my favorite parts of chemistry personally. They're always like, I don't understand. And they get all fussy about it, but you've had to do, you have had to execute practicing the law of conservation of matter. If you have balanced a chemical equation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you can thank Tony Mm -hmm. for the fact that you have to write balanced chemical equations to understand what goes on in a reaction. So yeah, those are, again, kind of just really, really short highlights, but very important. It's, he transformed, I mean, he got people from thinking of the world in terms of four elements of earth, air, fire, and water to, to what we understand today. So that's why it's father of modern chemistry. Right. Um, And then he and his buddies started a new journal called the Annals of Chemistry. Mm-hmm. in 1789 which ended up being distributed internationally had good success and you know what i didn't do is i didn't check to see if this is if that publication like changed in name and like survived somehow you know what i mean yeah i don't know i don't know but they did they did have some good success especially in france and england um maybe his wife helped him translate it into english i don't know I bet she did i mean she could have so, um, yeah, just total BA when it comes to chemistry. And again, as always, I am always impressed by what these people accomplished in the 18th century without the technology and the resources and the whatever, like just, they were just so smart. I don't know. They, people were just so smart. They I were think we're smart today. I really we're not. don't. We're definitely not. We're a hundred percent not. I don't care. Anybody says they, we have only been getting dumber. I really think that's true, to be honest. So yeah, really impressive. And that's his science. And uh, my stuff wasn't particularly juicy, but I had a few good tidbits in there. But now I think we're ready to get to the juicy, juicy stuff. I'm so very excited. I think we're ready to. So let's take a quick break and then we'll see how they got into it. All right. Okay, Rena. We need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's really great. 
The whole idea of Proton Guru is academic accessibility. So at protonguru.com, you can find a free full organic chemistry course, a free MCAT organic course, and diversity modules related to organic chemistry. The cool new thing that just got added might be the best part though. It's called MCAT Ladder, and it's an MCAT test prep course like no other. It's prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really wanted to keep costs low. The big thing about the program though, is how thorough it is with exceptional concept explanations and visual learning plus questions that are challenging like real MCAT questions. The MCAT ladder is only $500. And if that's not enough, they have a scholarship program too. So go on over to protonguru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. So let's get into it. We know that Tony was a huge deal for chemistry. Like he is modern chemistry. Yep. Or in, in many people's opinions, this is not just a few people that are like, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Like if, again, Brenna said, if you've read a chemistry textbook, you've heard Lavoisier's name. But or read it. Or read it. Yeah, now you've heard us say it or you've read it. Yeah. Some people were not cool with that at the time. And, uh -huh. and it was only, honestly, it was only 20% Tony's fault because I told you that you were like, no, you seem like a cool dude. Yes, but. So there he's like 20% at fault for some of what happened to him. The rest of it, he was kind of a victim of the terror as we will see. All right. Because like, remember with Marsh and Cope, they were kind of their own worst enemies. Oh yeah. They were just ridiculous. Okay, in this feud slash brawl, the worst enemy of literally the entire country of France was the terror brought to you by the French Revolution. So mm -hmm. we will be talking heavily about that. Not as heavily as okay. some historians may like because it's quite complicated. And I did a lot of research to kind of get the, keep the main thread going without just like copying and pasting from Wikipedia. So that's something to keep in mind. Okay. So Brenna, you did mention some of this, but I'm going to give a quick recap okay. to bring us back in. So in 1789, King Louis XVI of France made a lot of people very angry by raising taxes yet again. He was supporting the American colonies war of independence because, and not because he cared at all about America. He did not care at all about the United States of America. He super hated Britain, though. Yeah. So he was like, anything I can do to tick them off, mm -hmm. I'm in. So he did. And all that support was making him broke. So where did he go to get his money? The starving peasants. And they might not or, have been starving. Where else yet. would you go? Well, I mean. And they might not have been starving right then, but they were about to be. Which was, and so the peasants, their response to that was, um, no. And they delivered that message via a bloody revolution, resulting in the monarchy being overthrown and the royals being put into jail. The new people in charge decided that taking the high road with that was a firm no. And they began getting their revenge on the people who had supported the royalty in any way, whether they were royal or aristocracy or not. And revenge came in the form of a sham trial and Madame la Guillotine, which we'll talk about. So why does that matter? Why are we even talking about the French Revolution? Okay, Tony made a very powerful enemy before the terror that led to everybody's bad end. 
It all started back in 1763. Tony was a scientist through and through, desperately wanted to become a member of the Academy of Sciences. Academy of Sciences was the highest, it was like the peak of his of your profession if you were a scientist or natural philosopher in that time. But membership in France, was in France yes. And like, because Britain had the Royal Academy, so kind of every country or kingdom had that kind of thing. But in France, you were at the top of French science if you were a member of the Academy. Mm-hmm. But membership was limited to 100 people, including the king, so 99 people. And it was very super competitive. Only current members could have a vote and who got to join. So when someone left the academy or went on to do other things or got kicked out because they were a loser, whatever it was, which I'm sure happened because petty, petty people here, only current members could decide who got to join. So he began doing research on several topics and submitted like three papers in one year in order to get admitted, but he didn't get admitted in 1766. He was also not admitted in 1767. So strike two. Finally, in 1768, the Academy voted to admit him and he was pumped, but he seemed very shortly thereafter to have forgotten a lesson he could have learned from being denied entry so many times. In 1780, our buddy, who was considered a journalist at the time, even though he was kind of a doctor, as Brenna said, it's a little little complicated there, but our buddy J.P. Marat asked to be in the academy, submitted papers, tried to get it voted in. Uh, Levoisier, who could vote on that since he was a member, voted no. So here's the thing about Marat. He had somewhat of a unique professional history. I think is the best way to put it. Wouldn't you say it that way? way Mm -hmm. He wrote a lot of things. He was kind of continue. The only thing he kind of did continuously was be a writer. And he did a lot of scientific writing. He wrote a lot about medicine and about physics. It wasn't good or right, but he did a lot of writing. He, again, Brennan mentioned this. He had that quote unquote medical degree from St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I read there was one, one stingy book written in English about strictly about Marat and his life and his work. And this guy loves Jean-Paul Marat. It's he's like, he and JP were our besties. And so he is out there, you know, saying, um, no, actually he was really respected, but like, since only one guy is saying it, I don't know how true that is. But he was good. He was acknowledged by by more than one person to be good at working with his patients. He liked to treat a patient by examining him face to face, which wasn't something that everyone did at the time. They would just like walk in and stick a leech on you. You know what I mean? Which is not, you know, he was doing things besides that. And he, and he did work for the Royal family. So he wasn't a total quack. I mean, probably by today's standards, he was totally a quack. But back then, he was like not super prestigious, but he had some cachet. Yeah. But in the late 1770s, he transferred his attention to physics. He wanted to get out of medicine, probably because he was concerned about getting tuberculosis. Maybe. And he went into dealing with, with heat and light and electricity. 
did tons of experiments and some people respected him some people did not he was kind of a polarizing guy he couldn't do anything except write and be polarizing those were like his two talents and this writing about science which he didn't know very much about is what got him in trouble he wrote science. a paper the science quote unquote he wrote a paper called physical researches on fire and in it, he claimed that the flame of a candle in a closed container will go out because hot air pressed on it. Today, we know that the flame of a candle in a closed container goes out because it burns up all the oxygen. We understand oxygen. We know what a combustion reaction is. So it's not surprising to us that the flame, I mean, it surprised my kids the first time I did it, but then we talked about oxygen and now they know like what to expect. So the idea that the hot air is just pressing down on the flame and snuffing it out, totally wrong. And Tony was like, um, excuse me, no, because Tony was the expert, kind of an expert on combustion at this point. When his paper had got accepted to the academy about this phlogiston and, you know, fire isn't an element and, and there it's not a fluid. And there were all these things that he really challenged once they accepted that he, he, he could say with, with a, for a fact no, that's not why. Mm -hmm. And instead of pulling Marat aside and being chill about it, being like, hey, I don't know if you know that I did this experiment, but let's talk about your results because my results showed something different. And I just really think that you should pump your brakes on like submitting this because you're not going to get accepted. No, he just stood up in front of everyone and was like, no, wrong, loser. And that effectively kept Marat out of the academy. And did he do it? that way for real yeah it was for real it was, it was very public it was he very publicly dressed down marat and kind of picked apart his paper and made him look like a fool okay but was he wrong no but could he have been nicer about it yes so that's why i'm saying only 20 percent of this whole thing is his problem because unfortunately marat had the kind of personality that would not allow him to forget this slight or forgive him in any way. In case you can't tell whose side I'm already on, but yeah, continue. Oh, I'm on Tony's side too, but I'm just telling you All right. if he was a little bit more, and it, it wasn't in his, um, it wasn't in his personality to be diplomatic. It was in his personality to state facts and he wasn't nice about it. Think BBC Sherlock. He wasn't okay. ever wrong, but could he have been nicer? Yeah, probably. So Marat goes off and he still is trying to do some scientific things. But then we talked about that Tony got involved in a company called Ferme Générale, which collected taxes for the king. And some people thought that he couldn't possibly be involved in business and also be a good scientist, but they were totally wrong about that. And I think we have Marie to thank for a lot of that. She helped in a big way to make sure that he like, had a job and also did science. Yeah, we talked a lot about her. Yeah, um, he was in fact very good at his job. And tax, I mean, tax collectors through the ages have a crappy reputation, largely because most of them are dishonest. They wouldn't have a bad reputation if they could just like not literally not steal. Literally, all you have to do is stop stealing. I don't, know. I don't think you could ever change my opinion about how I feel about the IRS. Well, yeah, because they make the rules. If someone else made the rules, they would be criminals. Okay, Which, so then there's okay, no, so so this is, no, there's this, no this, way to have a happy, nice, friendly, your friendly neighborhood tax collector. That doesn't exist, period. 
And this kind of conversation is why the French Revolution happened. <laughs> I'm I not mean... saying you're wrong. I'm just saying. So Tony thought that the whole practice of like usury was not great. Like tax collectors upcharging the people that owed them money and then just keeping the extra. Tony was not into that. So he really did try to reform and try to make a difference and try to fix that where he could. But this time in history was just not a good time to be associated with the ruling class, particularly in France. Right. So even though he wasn't like, he was like trying to take him down from the inside, but it didn't matter because all anyone saw, especially enemies that he may have had, all anyone saw was that he was a part of the machine. So Tony being an owner of a company that collects taxes was getting less and less popular. So then Marat took the opportunity whenever he could to remind people that Lavoisier is part of the problem. So JP had become, oh, quite the political journalist ever since his scientific career died out. Remember I said he was really good at being polarizing and writing stuff. So he decided to combine those two things and write papers and for a newspaper, which I'm going to talk a lot about in a minute. So he wrote this 62-page essay called Offering to the Nation, where he encouraged reforms to bring about social change. And it wasn't like pro-revolution, and so it didn't really attract a lot of notice. But then he wrote the supplement, capital S. It was just a little too critical of the king. So the royal censors went out to seize every copy because they're like, oh, no, we can't have this going on. So the censors go out and they're like, we're buying all these. But instead of quieting JP, people saw him as being unjustly persecuted by the monarchy, which was already a thing that they had been accused of and had made them wildly unpopular. So that kind of established him as a militant patriot and helped him get elected to his district's electoral committee. And so this is when Maras begins to really find his revolutionary voice. It's 1789, and he begins publishing his own journal called The People's Friend, wherein he denounces many of the revolution's early leaders. He even goes after Tony in it. First, he attacked his science, quote, Lavoisier, putative father of all noisy discoveries. He has no ideas of his own, so he appropriates those of others. But since he cannot understand them, he abandons them again as easily as he adopts them, changing systems as he does his shoes. Which, a like, jerk. he is a jerk. Like, Marat, that was unnecessary. And we know that there was, there is some... I don't want to say debate because that makes it sound really contentious, but like the discovery of oxygen happened and the phlogiston thing, there were other people that also did, but that doesn't mean that Lavoisier stole it from them, like Marat said, and then just like ditched it when he stopped being able to talk about it. That's not what happened. But instead of like getting all bent out of shape about it, Lavoisier just ignores Marat. So he goes after other parts of Tony's life. But unfortunately, Tony's kind of super boring, and there wasn't really even anything good in the personal scandal category. Not even his wife's affair was, it, that, even that wasn't a big deal or good enough for like a public scandal. And it might have been kept so quiet that even JP himself couldn't find it out. So he goes after him for his ties to the gunpowder used when the Bastille fell, quote, I denounce you, Sieur Lavoisier, 
Just to think that this contemptible little man who enjoys an income of 40,000 leave has no other claim to fame than that of transporting powder from the arsenal to the Bastille on the night of July 12th. So you have to remember that the 14th of July is Bastille Day. So here's what happened when the Bastille fell. And the, the fall of the Bastille is like kind of the thing that kicked off the official French Revolution. So here's what happened. On the morning of July 14th, the city of Paris was a mess. Things had been happening. It was dangerous. It was, it was not a good situation in the city. The Revolutionary National Guard basically had stormed this armory, essentially, where they, they were trying to get the weapons there. There were like muskets and all this kind of thing, but there was no powder or shot, no gunpowder or shot. Because the guy in charge a few days before had taken the precaution of moving all of that stuff out of there to the Bastille, which Tony would have overseen because he was in charge of gunpowder. So the people in charge, the royalty, their aristocracy is how they would have seen it, took all the gunpowder to the Bastille so that the revolutionaries couldn't have it to overthrow the monarchy. It obviously wasn't Tony's fault. Yeah, I don't, I mean. Oh, Marat is stretching here. We can all okay. agree on that. All Tony right. was all just right. doing what he was told. He had, he, all he was is in charge of the gunpowder. Like, hey, we need to go to the Bastille. He was like, sweet, and did it. But, but what ended up happening was when the revolutionaries, when the good guys came in, quote unquote, good guys, when the revolutionaries came in and were like, let's get those guns. How are we going to use them? There's no gunpowder. Where did it go? So then they had to go storm the Bastille. And when the Bastille fell, that's kind of what kicked off the French Revolution. So at this point, it is important that I say, before I get into the denouement, that Marat did not kill Lavoisier, nor is he direct, he did not order his death. He is not mm -hmm. directly the guy that killed Lavoisier because he does die. However, the actions that he's going to take before his own death do make up a chain of events, a, seri a series of pieces of evidence that all point to Marat being indirectly responsible. And it didn't help that by all accounts, as I have said, Marat is really good at writing violent diatribes that relied more on the feelings of the revolutionaries than the facts. So if you're having some cognitive dissonance about the nonsense he was saying about Tony in relation to the Bastille, he was obviously making stuff up. He, there, this wasn't a time when people like had to go to an editor and check their sources. People could say anything they wanted. There weren't, there were eventually slander laws, but JP could kind of say whatever he wanted. It was his newspaper and he was going to say whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. And he was really, really good at stirring people up with feelings completely divorced from what actually the facts were. Tony was known for his objectivity and he didn't get overly passionate about anything, nor was he inclined to conceal the truth and exaggerate lies. That's why he was probably such a sass when they were at the academy. He wasn't overly inclined to be nice about it. He just said it warts and all. So if Tony's going to like clear cold facts, this time in France was not a good time 
for clear, cold facts. People wanted to have feelings. They wanted, they wanted change. They wanted revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so 1792, Marat gets elected to the brand new National Convention. National Convention is the first French government organized as a republic. They had a constitution and everything, kind of. It had two main factions though, and there was a third, which was called the Swamp in the Middle. But it was supposed to function as a single body, but it didn't because like when, literally when has that ever happened? Anyway, there were the Girondins, which I'm probably saying wrong, but I looked it up several times. So the Girondins, they were a more radical democratic factions. And then there were the Montagnards who were authoritarian populists. The swamp was in the center and they had no real policies or principles. So they weren't leading the convention. They had 70% of the vote though. And so they would just throw their weight behind either the Girondins or the Montagnards, whoever they were favoring at the time. JP aligned himself with the Montagnards, which meant he had to join the Jacobin Club. Oh, I've heard of those. You have heard of those. The Jacobins were a left-wing group who favored a centralized Republican state and strong central government powers. They were totally okay with extensive government intervention to transform society, which scares the bejesus out of me to so think about. So like a monarchy, but more people get to be like that. Yeah, isn't that, like, doesn't it seem like it shouldn't be that way? We don't like the monarchy, but also we want the government to just be in charge of everything. Like, what? I feel like that's what you have. You just want to be one of those people in charge of everything. But okay, bingo. Go on. So one of the leaders of the Jacobins was none other than Robespierre. And we'll get to him shortly, but Robespierre is one of the most famous names in all of French revolutionary history. So it comes out in convention that JP had favored in his, remember his journal, The People's Friend? Yeah. Well, he had favored a new insurrection to overthrow the national convention, Mm. which was wildly unpopular with the assembly, obviously. Obviously. But he insisted, he was like, guys, I wrote that a whole week ago. I totally don't believe that anymore. So quote, uh, well, this isn't a direct quote, but it probably sounded a lot like, no, you guys should totally not execute me because I didn't, I don't mean that now. It was a week ago. Yeah. So being a total drama queen, he puts a gun to his head during, I know, during the speech and tells them he would have blown his brains out if they would have arrested him. Like, dude. Dude's a psychopath. Pump your brakes. He really is, though. So, wow. The Girondins were not a fan of JP, but they had a problem, and JP would definitely exploit it. The problem was the Girondins could not decide what to do with poor King Louis. Some said let him live. Some said execute him. They were kind of split. So JP demanded a public roll call vote as to whether or not the former king should be executed. Because if any of the Girondins said no, obviously they're not devoted to the revolution and should be kicked out. You know, mm. that, was, that was what he was trying to mm. do. Because if in a public roll call vote, you got to stand up and say what your vote is. Right. Okay. So the Girondins really did agree that he was guilty of something. But at the end of the day, they didn't want him to be executed. They didn't think that executing him was the right thing to do. 
when the convention voted for execution, the Girondins tried to postpone it, but Louis was executed on January 21st, 1793. JP gets himself elected president of the Jacobin Club in April, making him oh. a, oh yes, it made him very credible as a Jacobin. Mm -hmm. He only showed up at one meeting though, said, hey, how's it going? Signed a piece of paper and headed off to attend a meeting at the convention, you know, doing his job, working for the people, right? Mm -hmm. Listen, he really should have read what he was signing. The paper said, in part, that the counter-revolution is in the convention and needs to be smashed. Hmm. And that's got JP's name on it. Okay. So, JP finds himself arrested for sedition. All right. Yes. He escapes during his trial and lives as a fugitive for a while in some really horrible places, mm -hmm. which will have lasting effects, we will say. Now, eventually, he's actually tried on some of these charges, and they were, they were trumped up charges. He just showed up, put his name on a piece of paper, and pieced out. But right. he was eventually tried for this, but he was acquitted. Okay. So he turns his attention to bringing down the Girondins and succeeds. On, hmm. June, on June 3rd, the day after the final debate of the Girondins and the beginning of the Jacobin Republic, Marat retires from politics. He did okay. what he set out to do, and he's like, bye. He's sick at this point, though, with a very nasty skin disease that he possibly contracted while he was living as a fugitive because he seriously lived in the sewer for a while. I got to talk, talk about that. I yes, got some information I, for you yes, about that. Yes, I, I cannot wait to get to the legacy part because I didn't read anything about it, so I want to know more about it. But he goes home to soak in his tub, and that's what he did. Seriously, he conducted pretty much all of his business from a tub. He had like a little desk that went over the top of it. And like, he would just soak in the tub at all times. He was still writing and working for the Jacobins who were now in charge of the convention. So he still played a role, but he wasn't going to convention. He wasn't like a part of the scene anymore. He was at home in his bathtub with his disgusting skin disease. Okay. On July 13th, 1793, a girl named Charlotte Corday tried three times to get in to see Marat. She sent him a note that had that said that she had information for him on treasonous stuff happening in her hometown. Mm. A bunch of Girondins were still hanging out there. So he's like, oh, yeah, you know what? If she's got info on more on like a Girondin uprising, I need that info. Yeah, you can let her in. So she goes into his bathroom where he's in the bathtub and immediately stabs him in the heart. Yeah. Wow. And that, that was it. It killed him. Mm -hmm. So she's arrested immediately and executed by guillotine four days later. It was like immediate. Yeah. Marat's assassination was the trigger for the reign of terror. Hmm. Yeah. So a lot of things led up to it. But what really like, because Marat was knew Robespierre they weren't friend like I don't think Marat had a lot of friends I don't think he had any friends probably not but he knew Robespierre and he was a very well-known Jacobin figure and the Jacobins were in charge and a Girondin had gone and executed and assassinated him which obviously meant that the Girondins were royalists and it was this whole mm -hmm. big so now we have to do now we just have to get rid of all of them because we can't have them right. going around killing people so we need to kill them Right. That makes, makes sense. Total sense. Yeah. All right. Let's jump back to Tony, 
who all this time was just plowing ahead with his experiments. He's just trying to, he's thinking this whole thing's going to blow over, whatever. It's just a little bit messy right now, but it's France. You know, it'll be fine. It's going to be great. In 1792, when the National Convention is the thing, the Academy of Science is going to start facing an issue. Now, the Academy is purely a scientific body that has no political leanings, unless you consider that it was funded by the now deposed monarchy. Ah, yes. That is enough to land everybody, especially the higher-ups like Lavoisier in hot water. Hmm. So Tony throws himself into saving the Academy because they were doing important scientific work and it wasn't about politics. It was like, yeah, sorry, the government, like, listen, the new government can fund us too. We don't care. We just want to do science. He manages to get permission for the scientists to resume their work on August 17th, 1793. But when they arrive to begin work, the Academy is sealed. And essentially, that's it. That it, It's dead. They're not getting back in. So by this time, JP has been dead for about a month, and the assassin has been executed. Mm-hmm. And the Jacobins, in retaliation for this and other things, were hunting down Girondins and sending them to the guillotine left and right. Like, everybody was going to the guillotine. Right. France was now being ruled by the Committee of Public Safety, mm-hmm. mm, which was not really a committee. It was mostly Robespierre. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it had nothing to do with public safety. It was mostly had to do with public executions. It was more the guy who was a public executioner more than the Committee of Public Mm -hmm. Safety. So Robespierre Robespierre was convinced that only by the drastic, somewhat drastic policy of killing everyone who disagreed with him, would the Jacobins be able to save the new republic from his enemies, Mm -hmm. which is terrible policy, I would just like to point out. It's not... It's not, it wasn't a good plan. It It didn't end well. It wasn't a good plan. But now Tony is kind of desperate to prove himself to be a friend of the new Republic because he really was. He, he was not a Royalist. He did not want the monarchy. He was, he, he just happened to work in a capacity that had connections to the now deposed monarch. He didn't really get anywhere with that. Marat, even though he's dead, had powerful friends on the committee, friends, quote unquote, connections on the committee. And he had done a lot to damage Lavoisier's reputation among these people and among the public because he didn't, that, those weren't the only times he wrote about him. He trashed him quite a bit. He mm-hmm. couldn't like, Tony kind of lived rent-free in JP's head for quite some time. Gotcha. So Tony is eventually arrested at the end of 1793, along with the other men who were part of the tax collecting firm that worked for the now dead Louis the Six. It was he was his name was Louis Capet, but it was Louis the Sixteenth, King Louis the Sixteenth. The revolutionaries who, after the Bastille fell, took over the Bastille and continued to use it as a prison. Correct. Considered Tony and the other owners of that firm part of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. They were not, but that's what they, they were like, no, you were a part of it. So bye. Right. Definitely treated them accordingly. Tony worked through the winter and by the spring of 1794 was really close to finishing up some of his work and some of his experiments. So he's continuing his work while he's in prison and he's doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Marie was not in prison. She was not no. arrested. She got out. Um, that's actually a kind of cool story. It wasn't germane to this, but it's kind of a that's there's some interesting stuff there Mm -hmm. but his last words 
they're like, you know, leading him up to the guillotine to be executed. And his last words were like, no, but seriously, I need like eight more days to finish this one experiment. Can I just, can I just, and they were like, no, off with his head. So he became a victim of the terror on May 7th, 1793. And that was the end of Tony. So the layers of this brawl are more subtle than those of Martian Cope. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we ask what's the fallout from this fight, which was kind of personal and also really public and had bigger ramifications in a lot of different players. Mm -hmm. In terms of the French Revolution, Marat, Robespierre, and the rest kind of sacrificed Lavoisier and others to their own ambition. It wasn't because of science, but science was a part of it. Marat, yeah. might, Marat might not have been so angry at Lavoisier in particular. I mean, probably he would have lost his head no matter what. But what yeah. happened when it did, we don't know. Could he have gotten out? Could he have paid someone? We don't, there's a lot of questions we can't answer because Marat had really damaged his reputation and done a lot to, to mess with him. Hmm. In terms of science, though, the biggest fallout is there. Like we were cheated out of anything Tony may have continued to discover had he not died. Right. Now, he was exonerated about 18 months after his death. Mm -hmm. So a year and a half later, they were like, sorry, he totally wasn't a bad guy. Oops. Which was probably small comfort for Marie. But, you know, she did survive him and she survived the terror. And she went on to finish some of the work that he started. So to this day, Antoine Lavoisier is known as the father of modern chemistry. And despite the fact that he died in the French Revolution, he still has quite a legacy, thanks to Marie and to the work that he did. Yeah. And that is the story of Lavoisier and Marat. And the French Revolution in a scooched down nutshell. <laughs> it's so it's so complex. It was like every single day yeah. for like seven years, there was an event that made someone angry and just yeah, it was still on the fire. But the French Revolution was a hot mess. It was. It was such a hot mess. It was. And of course, mostly, mostly the people who were the victims of that were the starving peasants. So... I mean, they did execute a lot of aristocracy, but I mean, I don't know, killing people because they were born into a family that had money isn't, doesn't seem like the best way to go about things. So it doesn't. And listen, if your ideas aren't good enough that you have to like kill people instead of convince them, isn't that, isn't that a you problem? Isn't that, isn't that a you problem? Not a them problem? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, you know, killing a large percentage of your population so that everyone agrees with you is not really, I don't know, great. So yeah. Robespierre made some bad choices. Not, not a good not dude. A, not a good dude. And Marat was in with the whole Jacobin crowd. So, so there you go. Yeah. So that's our brawl. Again, very different than our last yeah, brawl. Very. But this was a cool story. It was a cool one and it had interesting and very BA overtones i think definitely so let's wrap this up let's take a break and then talk about the legacy of this all sound good yeah 
Normally, during this wrap-up, we would discuss legacy and BA nature of whomever we've covered. But with the brawl, there's a good opportunity to talk about how the brawl changed science for good or for bad. And we're going to add in a little bit more science because you have some information for me about just what Marat issue was with the whole skin thing. So, So yeah, so talk about that first and then let's talk about like I don't know, honestly, what more is there to say? Like yeah. when Mozart died, it it truncated the development of that era of music in a big way because he was amazing. I feel mm-hmm. like Lavoisier is very similar in that his death just cut off very abruptly what could have been an astonishing career. And so they were already astonishing with what they had, but man, I feel like we were just missing out on more. You know, so I don't know yeah. if there's anything more to say beyond that. I do want to talk about his skin disease, JP skin disease. Okay. Yes. It's pretty cool. Well, for me, obviously it wasn't cool for him because, no, you well. know, he had blisters and oozing sores and was real itchy and just gross stuff. Gross. And he was obvious, apparently he was already really ugly to start with. And yeah. then the skin condition made him like even yuckier. So even when he was alive, there was debate about what was wrong with him. So his haters are saying, ah, oh, it's syphilis because, you know, haters you know. going to hate. But JP blamed his having to hide out, sleep in cellars and be in dirty, yeah. damp clothes and all this stuff. Yeah. Other suggestions that have uh, been put forth over the years have included leprosy, mm-hmm. candida thrush, scabies, a lot of things. Okay. It could so have been any one, one of those. Okay. So one disease seems to be held as more of a possibility. And I think this is from, I had the paper. I don't have it in front of me. I think this was in the seventies, but the, someone proposed dermatitis herpetiformis. I'm just going to call it DH. Okay. So it's not like herpes though. It actually is not, even though it's herpetiformis, it's not related to the herpes virus. Okay. Okay, Cause I was very confused. Cause I was like, wait a minute, full body herpes. Stop. Yeah, no, just, this is a little different, but I looked up DH symptoms and so forth. So DH is an itchy skin disease and usually starts later in life, like between your thirties and your Mm forties, it can start at any point. Like it can start in childhood. It's just not very common. It does affect men more than women. Hmm. Um, and so I looked, I used the Cedars Sinai website for my medical information today. I like that website. It says that DH is caused by gluten sensitivity. And your body triggers an immune response and then antibodies go into your skin. And when the antibodies go into your skin, that because of the immune response, it causes itchy rashes. Mm-hmm. So like celiac disease, but affecting your skin, not your stomach kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. I didn't study the history of DH. I kind of want to, but obviously in the 18th century, nobody was worried about gluten sensitivity. No. (laughs) Oh, I can't have gluten. I'm gluten free. Right. Like they didn't do that. The French, the French do love their croissants. So well, and like he wasn't a starving peasant, so he had bread. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think there are maybe some more compelling arguments about him having this. If you go in literature, I didn't. But that was one of the uh, conditions put forward. And that really wouldn't have anything, again, wouldn't have had anything to do with him living in sewers. No. Um, it would have been, again, a response of his body to some kind of trigger. Like an autoimmune disease. Right. It's an yeah. autoimmune. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. But 
just a few years ago. So the articles I were looking at, uh, the articles that I saw were out in 2019, but that was before a peer reviewed article was published. I'm pretty sure I tried to find the actual peer reviewed article and I just couldn't get access to it because it was in a JAMA publication that my university just doesn't have access to. But anyway, so a group of people performed metagenomics to sequence some of JP's DNA. How Wait, did they what? get his DNA? Wait. Oh my gosh. After he was murdered, his sister saved the newspapers covered in his blood from when Charlotte came in and stabby stabbed him. <gasps> what? Because he said he had a desk and stuff, right? So he had his stuff like covered yeah. in the bathtub. Where yeah, his stuff was in there. Yeah. So when she went all stabby stabby, his blood splattered onto, you know, yeah, stuff sure. there. And his sister saved them. <sighs> supposedly, right? Okay. So supposedly we've got these newspapers covered in his blood and they were able to recover a sample from those newspapers, right? A sample of his blood. It. Yeah. Okay. See, I told you this was so fun and so cool. Metagenomics. And I know essentially whatever Google or the articles were telling me about this because I do not know anything about metagenomics. I didn't know metagenomics was a thing until, you know, five seconds ago. But I guess from what I, from what I understand and, you know, y'all smart biology people out there can, you know, correct me, but I guess it's a technique where, so you chop it all up into bits and then you put segments of DNA together using genomes of previously sequenced microbes and stuff. Mm -hmm, I think this is actually a pretty new technology. It's not a hundred percent reliable, but I think there's some interest in using this. I I think that the interest is growing. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, somebody tell me what's up with all of this. But despite the limitations, I think it's really cool. So what they could determine from this. So the DNA seemed to indicate that there was Italian and French ancestry. So they did that, Mm -hmm. which we talked about his mom had. I'm pretty, we're pretty sure his mom had the um, connection to the French Huguenots. And then his dad, I said, was Sardinian, which would fall in line with Italian. There was a Y chromosome. Okay. So it wasn't like Charlotte's blood or sister's blood, right? Like it was a dude's blood. It was. And and it wasn't a contaminated sample. It wasn't like her like skin cells or whatever. It was like, it was was truly his. Okay. So, I mean, and again, I mean, it could have been somebody else's. Maybe it was a good prop for the, the Jacobins to have whatever, but anyway, if this is his blood, what they did find was a fungus called Malassezia restricta. So I read somewhere that Malassezia colonize human skin and other animals like all the time, but mostly appears to be tolerated by the human immune system. It's just another thing, like your body's full of bacteria and things that just like exist, right? Yeah. But it's an opportunist. Uh, like an opportunistic fungus, which I think essentially means it finds a way to become a problem. Yes. Which then leads to super infection of bacteria. Okay. So one of the things that can result is something called seborrheic dermatitis. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but I think it's seborrheic dermatitis. Okay. So when I look up this particular type of dermatitis, it mostly just means like dandruff. Although you can get it on other oily parts of your face, your neck, mm-hmm. your ears, your back, kind of wherever, wherever you get oil built up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you can get other places, 
Um, but this particular dermatitis is mentioned as the secondary infection from the malassezia restricta. Like it may not necessarily move to that. You might not necessarily get the seborrheic dermatitis, but if you have the malassezia restricta uh, fungus, then it, it could, again, you get these super infections and then you just kind of have a, a buildup of problems that could lead to something like this. Okay. So finding that fungus there is kind of interesting, like mm-hmm. finding that in his DNA. Okay. But there are some flaws with this, like I said. So just because they found malassezia restricta in the sample, that doesn't necessarily mean it was from Tony's blood because his blood was on paper. So right. that paper could have also had its own fungi, bacteria, mm-hmm. bacteria, and so forth. So we can't rule out um, that it was definitely from him, but still it was there. But we also can't rule out autoimmune diseases like dermatitis herpetiformis. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we can actually say for sure what this was. I just think it's really cool. This technology is so cool in terms of if you can get DNA of these people from the past and you can start sequencing, like what else could you find out about people who were not sure how they died in history? So yeah, it's, I I don't know. It's a topic that I'm very interested in knowing more about metagenomics because I would like to know more how it actually works and what, what really are its limitations or how much we could develop it to be able to do this kind of stuff. Cause it's really, again, it's fascinating. Like what is like his skin disease is a very important piece of history because like you said, if he wasn't chilling in his bathtub, I mean, would he have gotten murdered somewhere else? Yeah, probably. But I mean, the fact that he was there and easily accessible and vulnerable being in a bathtub. He was naked. You know what I mean? Like what was he going to do? Leap out of the bathtub? No, he was a sick man. Right. You know, and he didn't have his guard. It's not like he was sitting in a room and had like a bodyguard because he was still worried that maybe someone would come out and get him or whatever. But anyway, um, I think it could just be a really cool thing to be able to learn more about people from history that we are not 100% sure how they died. Um, but that's what I got for you on JP skin disease. So yeah. cool. No science. Science. Yeah. But, um, you know, for me as a chemist, obviously Tony is just, we've said it, he's just so important. And I just love people doing amazing things back hundreds of years ago, doing what they did. But, um, I did read as far as his legacy, I read, he eventually got a statue in Paris uh, but it was melted down during World War II and they never rebuilt it. So I read that the only recognition he has now in Paris is a street in the 8th arrondissement. And I think maybe two other statues of him. There's like a, I think there's maybe like a relief where he's there at the Louvre, maybe outside the Louvre. And then like one other place, I can't really remember, but not really a lot of him exists still in Paris, but there's at least a few places where, you know, he's mm-hmm. still there. Sure. Kind of, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I hate that. He, I, French Revolution was so stupid. I read a lot of historical fiction and I read books mm-hmm. that take place during the French Revolution. And partly it's because of the, how the authors want you to feel, but I, it just makes me so mad every time I read this stuff. Cause I'm like, wow, look at all these people getting killed for no reason. This is dumb. I'll step off my soapbox now, but it just annoys me. That's fair. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the French revolution. I think at the time, even the French weren't a fan of the French revolution. It's just like something that happened. 
I mean, if we're talking revolutions, I just think that America did it way better. So thanks for the gunpowder France, but we did it better than y'all. Yeah. Also like Ben Franklin was over there. Come on. Like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were over there all the time. You could have asked them at any time for advice. Anyway. Yeah. Tony was a total BA. I don't know that JP was as much of a BA. I mean, no. he had some kind of, he had some kind of cool things, you know, in his life, but, um, both super important in history. And their fight was, is very, very well known. I mean, if you Google, you know, famous science fights, definitely Tony and JP show up. So, yeah. you know, it's a good one. It's got, it's got some intrigue, some scandal, death, you know, all the good things that people want to hear about. So all the stuff. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. You ready for sources? Yeah. So I mostly got, I had a book on Lavoisier, chemist, biologist, economist by Jean-Pierre Poiret. And Mm -hmm. then I also used the book, The Last Sorcerers, which I've talked about a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And then I've got various articles on JP and then some, you know, I think I have a link or two to some of those skin conditions that I talked about. Yeah. I read uh, Torch and Crucible by Sydney French, skimmed it. That was a good, an, an interesting source. I read uh, The Chemist Who Lost His Head by Vivian Gray. That was a good book. Then the book that I mentioned before was by Clifford D. Connor, who mm-hmm. is besties with JP, yeah. would have been besties with JP. And I couldn't get my hands on a copy of that. It was so, like, there is one copy in the state of Ohio where yeah, I, I happen to reside. It. And I, it was so hard to get. So I, when I got it, I was done like I might have I might have got it from OSU like it's it was like one place in Ohio so it was really hard to get and yeah and it's a very slim tome very small book Mm -hmm. but um he really spends a lot of time talking about how awesome JP was and he totally gets a bad reputation it's like I think he gave himself his own reputation like you know so, and yeah. then some, some articles and links and stuff that I'll, you know, we'll have listed in our sources, mm-hmm. but uh, those were, those are my sources. All right. Are you ready to tease next week? Yeah. Next week, we are heading east of Eden. <gasps> we are. We've Perfect. been doing some John Steinbeck type titles. So I felt like that was an appropriate one. It is. It's totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. That's what, yep. that's what I got. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That's what we'll do next week. It's going to be a good episode. I'm not going to talk very much because there's not a lot to say, but we'll probably talk for three hours and I'll cut most of it like we do. Nah, <laughs> I won't talk that long. Probably. Probably. No, we'll see. All right. So anything else from you this week? Do we cover it all? I think so. I think we did too. So until next week, live dangerously, do science. <laughs>